0: Hello and welcome to City Community Culture with me, Sam Bergham The music at the beginning was Small Town Boy by Bronski Beat, used under fair use for critique, quotation or review. In 2022, Time Out magazine ranked Small Town Boy number 12 in their list of the 50 best gay songs to celebrate Pride all year long. They added By incorporating unapologetic LGBTQ themes into their sleek synth-pop hit, Bronski Beat were true pioneers, and this 1984 classic is their most transcendent moment. Frontman Jimmy Somerville, in a sensitive falsetto, sings about a lad who flees hometown bullying. Run away, turn away, is the recurring refrain, against a steady, reassuringly numb background of rhythm and synthesizer. This song takes the pain of rejection and makes it danceable. The song highlights a double edge of LGBTQ communities and the city. On the one hand, the urban promises a place for individual expression, as well as a location of community and belonging for a marginalised group. And yet it is also a place which is historically policed, suppressed, marginalised and demanded invisibility of the LGBTQ community. In many cities around the world, homosexuality and non-normative gender and sexual identities remain a criminal offence, risking state or civic violence and victimization. In the UK, there is today greater civil and human rights for LGBTQ people as well as steady increase in cultural acceptability by wider heteronormative society than there was in the past. And yet, despite this, there's still plenty of examples of both exclusionary and sometimes violent behaviour towards queer people. What's more, a greater acceptability of queer spaces has been co-opted into the marketing of cities, portraying them as diverse, cosmopolitan and commercially attractive places for the gentrifying classes. For example, gay villages and pride marches were once spaces which challenged the wider city. Here were spaces where people could be themselves and find solidarity with others who were also navigating the heteronormative and patriarchal oppression of wider society. And yet both gay villages and pride marches, in becoming more culturally accepted by the mainstream, have become subject to commercialisation, neoliberal competition between cities to attract the creative classes as well as straight society co-opting and subjecting these spaces to the heteronormative gaze all of these trends it has been argued undermine and narrow the liberatory and political potential of these spaces to understand how gender and sexuality intersect with both both marginality and empowerment in urban space I met with Dr Ben Colliver, a lecturer in Criminology at Birmingham City University. We took a walk around some of the venues and spaces in Birmingham's Gay Village to reflect on the place of LGBTQ communities in the city today.
1: When we talk kind of LGBTQ, um, we're talking kind of lesbian and gay, um, so gay is historically applied to to men who are attracted to other men, but lots of women also describe themselves as as gay women, Um, whereas lesbian historically has been applied to just women who are attracted to other women. Um, And then bisexual is, you know, a man or woman who's attracted to men and women. Um, Trans is, you know, somebody who falls between or beyond, I guess, our kind of dichotomous understanding of man and woman. Um, and so trans as a, a kind of term might include people who are, who are non-binary or third gender. Um, and then Q is a, a funny one because it depends on what context you say it in. A lot of kind of charity organizations use Q for questioning. A lot of academics, a lot of activists use Q for queer. Um, yeah, yeah so I used to work for, um, the, the biggest equality and diversity organisation in London and we use Q as questioning. I guess when we used it, we just meant people who were questioning yeah. their sexuality or their gender. Right. Um, or maybe people who are beginning to explore their identity that uh, haven't decided on a label or maybe don't want a label. Um, but yeah, so I guess queer is also a, a contentious term um, that creates division. Obviously, historically, it's been used... Uh, to kind of oppress predominantly gay men. Um, and I guess there's, you know, some work around can that word be reclaimed. I've found having spoken to people in the community, there tends to be a an age divide. Get yeah, There tends to be an age divide around the use of the term queer. I see a lot of younger people using the term queer. A lot of older people not liking the term queer being used. And whether that is you know, in terms of lived history of having experienced that term yeah. um so again queer is kind of a a contentious term that is not agreed on in in kind of lgbtq communities um but yeah i guess that the the wider kind of issue around trans inclusion and whether spaces are inclusive of trans people um and i guess kind of separating ideas around Gender and sexuality and whether they should be together or whether they shouldn't be together um, and I mean historically trans people have always been present in, in kind of you know if you look back to the lesbian and gay movement there was trans people as part of that um, and I guess they weren't not formally recognised but included in language um, in those kind of movements until more recently but that doesn't mean that their presence and their contribution was not there yeah. um, but yeah, so actually, you know, gay venues having trans flags on the front is a good sign of, of inclusivity. Um But again, it, it comes back to that, I guess kind of like positive image work of look how inclusive we are. We've put a flag up to smaller things like, you know, what is your toilet provision like in there? Um, is it accessible for trans people? Um, you know, what is the, the, the advertising that you have in your in your venues is that inclusive of trans people. So there's a, you know, almost kind of like tokenistic, we'll put a flag up, but whether that actually trickles down into yeah, we're reality to <laughs> is different. So I mean, the, I guess the kind of, you know, resurgence and re-popularising of the, the word queer I guess comes back to um, I guess looking to challenge what we have. Um, you know, I think if we look at, at especially young people today tend to be quite politically engaged quite politically aware um i guess the word queer goes back to the ideas of of protest um and non-assimilation not fitting in um going against what is accepted as the natural or the norm um and so there is this kind of you know reusage of the word queer that i think has those kind of connotations of challenging what might be seen to be a kind of normative space. Some of it will be, you know, around kind of queer pubs will just be their historic naming as gay pubs, which um, just in, in the name of it is in exclusionary of, of lots of people. Um, you know, the word gay historically being applied to men, we see clubs are predominantly, queer clubs are predominantly catered towards men, And so I guess, you know, reframing these spaces as queer spaces is about challenging almost kind of like the inherent privilege that gay men have in terms of accessing these spaces. These spaces have predominantly been set up by gay men for gay men. Um, And as a result, there is a a lack of space for everyone else. Yeah, and I guess some of it is just, you know, just in terms of, you know, what sounds right, you know does it sound right to say oh i'm going to the lgbtq club um (laughs) you know there is there is stuff in terms of you know what just seems natural to us in the in the way that we talk what doesn't seem natural they've you know predominantly been called gay villages gay pubs gay clubs um which i guess is is useful just you know in the the way that it's a, a term that people recognize you say that people know what you mean whether you intend that to be in a Exclusionary way or not People know what you mean when you say you're going to the gay pub Yeah, um, yeah I guess then Using the word Swapping that for the word queer Then potentially becomes problematic yeah. If these places referred to themselves as, as queer pubs Would it then exclude people who Have a very strong feeling Against the use of the word queer Does it then become inaccessible For them to occupy a space that they Disagree with how that, that space is framed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess that how we describe them is tricky. Yeah, so this one's quite nice because it's got the art on the outside, which none of the others have. Yeah. So, obviously, this is you have uh, the kind of rainbow hair, you know, standard kind of symbol of, of gay venue. You've got your love is love, which I'm pretty sure was a, a pride slogan. A couple of years ago okay. um, I want to say that was the theme of, of pride so there is Birmingham pride every year um, it's one of the bigger ones most of the, the, the city ones are, are the big ones London and Brighton tend to be your biggest um, and then Birmingham Manchester Liverpool are all relatively big prides um, but it's nice because you also see in like what um, kind of rural places a lot smaller prides, which are a completely different vibe and atmosphere. Yeah. Um, they're much more kind of like family and community, basically. Tends to be a relatively small field with maybe a couple of a couple of stages where they have a drag queen performing, they have singers, um, compared to like Birmingham Pride, which is big march through the city, yeah. very alcohol centred. Um, but I guess Pride in, in Birmingham almost kind of takes over the entire yeah. <laughs> city, um, <laughs> because most people will end up down this way towards the end for yeah. the clubs and the for pubs. The yeah. um, so this is obviously Pride art, and it's interesting because that one's got Riots written on it, which I guess kind of goes back to the, the history of, of Pride, the purpose of Pride. You know, the the foundations of of pride, we quite often talk about kind of America, New York, as being out, you know, Stonewall riots, which was the riot when the the kind of gay pub was being over-policed constantly, and then the the riot kind of came about in response to police harassment. The first pride march, the support that um, the miners gave to, at the time, which would have been the lesbian and gay support the miners, And so that kind of collaborative relationship originating in Pride with, originating in London um, with maybe a thousand people, and now you see Pride with, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people attending, and Pride has now become this kind of international event as well, before it was very kind of local, very national, Um, and now you have this kind of international take on pride we have like euro pride every year so the the big kind of european pride um and so pride has gone from this kind of starting foundation of protests against criminalization of homosexuality police violence police brutality police harassment um and it's really interesting because i don't know if you saw pride in glasgow possibly pride in edinburgh um, it was a big Scottish city pride. Um, the police were asked to lead the parade, um, and a group of protesters arrived um, holding signs that said uh, faggots against fascism. It was a protest about inviting the police to lead the parade. Um, and then you saw lots of kind of gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer people being arrested for hate speech for having signs that said faggots on. Um, and so you've kind of almost come full circle, you know, you've got yeah. Pride starting as a, a riot against police harassment and being over-policed uh, a couple of years ago. Again, police violence at Pride. I think it was Edinburgh Pride. Um, all because people were protesting police involvement in the parade and not only involvement being asked to lead the parade in something which has historically come from protesting against <laughs> policing.
0: The roots of gay pride marches are in the Stonewall riots which happened in New York in June 1969. This is a city where since the mid 19th century impersonating a female or appearing in public in a dress not belonging to his or her sex was a criminal offence. And some of these laws weren't actually repealed until 2011. This is a community which was over policed and oppressed in the 1960s and preceding decades These were not welcoming times for LGBTQ Americans. For instance, the solicitation of same-sex relations was illegal in New York City at the time. The Stonewall Riots were a response to police trying to shut down a gay venue in New York. And out of these riots came both Gay Pride and the Gay Liberation Front in 1970. The first Pride event was organised by Brenda Howard, A bisexual activist in new york city in june 1970 and the first march was actually called the christopher street liberation day march which is the name of the road where the stonewall inn is and the event had both the elements of a celebration and a protest
1: so i think you know a lot of people say that you know do we still need pride when we look back at its foundations As a, a, you know, a protest, a riot against over policing, do we still need it? Is it just an excuse to have a party? Um, pride is still important in its original aspect in terms of being under protected, over policed. Um, but also just about a presence in, in the city and having a, a very visible presence in the city. Um, you know, lots of people, especially when we look at cities, um, Lots of people move to cities, for example, for things like university, and they come here and they don't have friends, they don't know anyone, they don't have connections. Pride in itself shows that there is a, a community here for you to belong to, for you to be involved in. And that's, I guess, the, the same as not just pride, but also having a, a gay village that is also visible. Yeah. It's about that that kind of positive representation, that symbolism of you know, buildings of art, of spaces for people. It's a, you know, a symbol of inclusivity, um, even though it, it, it's not necessarily inclusive of, of everyone. Yeah, no, I think for, you know, Birmingham is an incredibly diverse city. Um, and so I think having, you know, a kind of gay village in Birmingham is incredibly important, particularly, you know, for people who, You know, I guess cities can be, you know, having lived in London for a very long time, it can be an incredibly impersonal (laughs) environment to live in. Um, There's not necessarily, um, I guess the sense of of community in, um, I guess the sense of kind of, you know, neighbors, stuff like that. Lots of people live in cities don't know who their neighbors are. And so it offers that sense of community in a, a different way. To how we might have you know traditionally understood what community yes. is in terms of that that very kind of local where you live community um and i also think it gives that point of um i guess community again but if you look back to you know relatively recently there was the kind of string of homophobic hate crimes in birmingham's gay village so i guess that that visibility is kind of almost like a double-edged sword, in that it gives that sense of community, but it also provides a a target area for people who potentially want to (laughs) victimise LGBTQ people, but then it also offers that sense of, you know, when you see that happen and you see kind of queer communities coming together on the street at night time to, I guess, kind of symbolically stand up against the events that have happened. Mm -hmm it offers that, um, I guess, kind of physical place. So it's it's not just that kind of symbolic sense of community, it also offers that very, very physical space where people meet. You know, thinking, I mean, not even probably that far back in history, um, the idea of having a visually gay space in a city, was probably not seen to be a reality that would exist. Um, You know, if we go back to, you know, the 60s when we look at kind of like partial decriminalisation, you still, at that point, you wouldn't have visibly, visibly gay villages. You might have a venue that was probably over-policed and targeted and harassed. Um, But to have now more than one venue in a space that is visibly queer, that isn't necessarily over- policed Um, Yeah, it was probably not not a realistic concept. Um, You know, in in terms of history, it wasn't that long ago um, that that would have been the case. But yeah, no, so I definitely think, you know, when you look at at how space is occupied, even though this is a a relatively small village for a city, um, just the presence of it is in itself symbolic of historic struggles, um, to get to a point where you can go to these places. You don't have to worry about being arrested as you walk in. You don't have to worry about being harassed by the police. In in the same way, um, you know, there are still issues around over-policing. Some of that will be on assumptions and stereotypes about particularly gay nightlife and, and drugs. So there is still over-policing, but for different reasons now.
0: Elsewhere, in his 2020 article with Silvestri, Ben has argued that visibility is a more useful lens than difference or vulnerability in order to understand the systematic harms against the LGBTQ community. In the paper, they argue that understanding the intersectional dynamics of visibility and invisibility is key to understanding how people navigate identities in different spaces and contexts. This is because, quote, an individual's level of visibility has implications for which spaces and by whom they are likely to experience abuse. In other words, visibility and invisibility are not evenly distributed across urban space, even within the LGBTQ community, and this has implications for the politics of these spaces. What's more, as Ben has pointed out here, the increased visibility of queer spaces has come with a number of drawbacks, not least the commercialisation and mainstreaming of gay villages and pride, which threatens to sanitise and narrow the expression of non-normative identities.
1: Its intention is to be visible in the city, its intention is to be inclusive and then in practise kind of the mainstreaming of of kind of queer venues has led to almost kind of like a watering down of the purpose of gay venues. Gay venues, I mean, originated because people didn't have a safe space to be themselves, to look for relationships, to develop connections. And it was about creating that space where you didn't have onlookers, you didn't have people judging you based on your, your sexuality or your gender. Um... But with the, the the kind of mainstreaming of it it's almost that that kind of outside coming in um and something that you know people talk about is that kind of heterosexual gays that you now see in gay clubs because they are you know for lots of good reasons like good music they often have late opening hours like if you look at, at licensing of, of gay venues they tend to have later opening hours than straight venues so there's lots of reasons that that heterosexual people want to come to gay clubs, but it also now means that that heterosexual gaze that was meant to be kept out is now almost kind of like a key feature of the inside. Um, so I think, you know, in, in principle it's still got the same intention, but it doesn't necessarily translate like that in, in real life. Yeah, I guess it becomes the, 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 the line between visibility and recognition and then assimilation. It was never meant to be, we're the same as you, so we should be treated the same. It was, we're different from you, but we still deserve equality and respect and dignity. That doesn't change. But it was never about, we want to fit in to, you know, a heteronormative lifestyle. And I guess the mainstreaming of kind of queer spaces, in mainstreaming them, it almost says there's uh, an acceptable, a respectable way to be queer that is okay for heterosexual people to consume there 's a way that we can do it where it means heterosexual people don 't have a problem with it and it 's kind of lost it. it It was never about we want to be the same as you it was we are different, but we still deserve um, and so now I think you know you see the the mainstreaming of these venues and it goes down more of a kind of fitting in to the heteronormative rather than just saying, we are here, we would like respect and dignity, but we're not gonna change how we are. You know, we can talk about kind of research on on gay villages and the the popularity that they have. People travel all around the country to go to different gay villages. They are almost like a a tourist attraction in more ways than one, just in in terms of, you know, the venue itself, going to the venue. but also a tourist attraction in, in the sense of, um, if we go back to talking about that kind of heterosexual gaze, it's a place for, it's almost like a spectacle, a circus. You go in and there is the heterosexual gaze on queer people and what they're doing and the relationships that they have and how they conduct themselves in these spaces. Um, so yeah, so I guess it's kind of like touristy in, in two different yeah. <laughs> senses.
0: In their 2004 article, Authenticating Queer Space, Bell and Binnie argued that sexual others have been conscripted into the process of urban transformation. And by turn, city branding has become part of the sexual citizenship agenda. They argue that there's been an interweaving of urban governance and sexual citizenship agendas which have produced particular kinds of sexual spaces at the exclusion of other kinds. Sexual citizenship has been woven into the tournament of urban entrepreneurialism and how this affects sexualized spaces. This process is an instance of what they call the new homo-normativity, producing a global repertoire of themed gay villages, as cities throughout the world weave commodified gay space into their promotional campaigns. They conclude, and I quote, the presence of gay communities and spaces has become part of the arsenal of entrepreneurial governance, giving sexual others a central role in place promotion as symbols of cosmopolitanism and creative appeal. Yet this incorporation has meant tightening regulation, of the types of sexualized spaces in cities and the sexual restructuring of cities is a powerful component of a new homo-normativity which is a broader ideological project tied to the logic of assimilationist sexual citizenship Counterintuitively, perhaps it's the diversity of these spaces that is seen as so attractive in promotional campaigns And yet, it's these campaigns which regulate and restrict that diversity in practice.
1: There's a difference between gay venues that are in gay villages and gay venues that are not in gay villages. (laughs) Gay venues in gay villages tend to be more mainstream. They are in a city, they are a business, they are looking for profit. And part of that profit doesn't matter who the profit comes from, the money is you know, what keeps them running. Whereas when you tend to see kind of gay places that are not in gay villages, they tend to be less mainstream. There tends to be a, a mix in terms of, you know, gender presentation. There tends to be more androgyny. There tends to be more um sexualization, but not in a, a mainstream way, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay, yeah. Like you go to, to non-mainstream places you see a lot more kind of like leather, um, stuff like that that you tend not to see okay. in mainstream. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and some of that again will be, you know, in terms of lots of gay pubs also have quite a big heterosexual clientele and what becomes respectable sexuality for gay people in front of mm-hmm. heterosexual people and what should be reserved for just queer places that are occupied by just queer people. Yeah. Um, and I guess some of those, you know, boundaries and expectations and limits around sexuality, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, um, yeah. So, I mean, generally, um, Birmingham's kind of gay village caters predominantly to, um, whites, gay men, gay women, not so much trans people. There's issues around... Um, kind of accessibility just in terms of physically getting into the building that is potentially exclusionary for people with disabilities. There's also issues depending on pricing that may have uh, a kind of exclusionary factor based on kind of age or class or social income. Um, And so I mean across the Gay Village generally you might find somewhere that is inclusive that maybe other places aren't. But I don't think there is a space in Birmingham's Gay Village that is completely inclusive. Um, They tend to to cater for different, um, I guess, kind of groups of people. Nightingales has a much bigger kind of heterosexual clientele than the Village and Eden Bar. If you go into the Village and Eden Bar, if you talk to most people, most people are LGBTQ. Nightingales is a nightclub. it has student nights, it has incredibly cheap drinks. Yeah. It is therefore appealing to, to everyone. Um, it also tends to be a, a quite a young clientele in Nightingales. Eden Bar tends to be middle-aged and older. Village is more of a kind of mix of, of all ages. Um, but yeah, so I guess different places are inclusive to different groups, to different levels. Um, But yeah, so stuff around, uh, you know, the village inn has uh, kind of gender neutral toilets. They're not particularly well built. Nightingale's has gender neutral toilets, not particularly well designed, um, just because they took the women's toilets away, turned that into a gender neutral toilet. Um, And we already know that women have about half of public toilet provision than what men do. Whereas Eden Bar doesn't have gender-neutral toilets, it only has male-female toilets. Um, so just small things like, you know, what kind of toilet provision are you offering? all have an impact on whether somebody decides to go there or not. So yeah, so Eden Bar was, I guess, um, the I would say it was probably the most um, middle-class respectable venue yeah. <laughs> out of the gay villages. It was the most expensive. Um, So just in terms of, you know, costing of drinks and snacks, it excluded a lot of people um, who couldn't afford to pay that much. It doesn't do drink deals. It doesn't do your free drinks for eight pounds kind of stuff. Um, And even just the the setup, it's all been set up with, it reminded me of being very kind of like burlesque in there it had like these big velvet curtains with the tassels and the velvet chairs. Um, and yeah, so it tended to attract a, a kind of more middle-aged and upwards kind of group. Um, but it was also important, it is kind of the, the venue where, so there's, there's kind of like online groups for like um, LGBTQ people join this kind of social group online on Facebook or on Twitter and then they organise meets up meetups in, in real person for you to connect with the people that you've met. So Eden Bar was kind of like the venue that a lot of people would host their get togethers. So it was important because it, it's also probably the, the quietest venue in terms of it's not a rave in there. It was always very quiet music. Um, it was more of a a social space. Yeah, so it was never really kind of like a, a party place. It was much more laid back than, than some of the other places, um, which are always, you know, DJ, rail music, can't hear what anyone else is saying. You just go there to dance and, and that's it. Um, whereas this was, I guess, had importance in that it was the social space of the, the gay scene in Birmingham. Yeah, and so I guess you, you see this in... Um, I guess, kind of big cities across England. Um, I guess you know the, the gentrification process of, of cities. You see some of the, the big policies, venues in London, um, Heaven nightclub in London.
0: Structures. It might seem um, important. You to know, is obviously that under the train station. For people the council have wanted that venue. This is about assuring an urgent and political and priority. Will
1: they one day eventually get it? cities
0: that correspond to human social needs. Um, you see, like than the Royal the Vauxhall Tavern,
1: the council wanted that for years. I'm inclusion. pretty sure that sh- before lockdown was granted.
0: Well, I'm, not
1: I'm not a, a building person. A right
0: special. Special right status to as a building, life, to I mean. renew
1: so to yeah, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which is you know a really old gay bar in Vauxhall in London, has received that, that special status. So it can't be knocked down.
0: Um, but you see, it, and I think when you look at it,
1: it primarily tends to affect um, bars that are set up for women. Um, like if you look at London, there are virtually zero bars that now specifically cater. to to gay and bisexual women. There were maybe six or seven at one point. They've all eventually been taken over, knocked down or turned into flats, offices. Some of it will be just around um, profit and income and whether you can keep a business. The bars in London that were for gay and bisexual women tended to be less busy than, I guess, mainstream. Gay bars. Um, obviously, you still get gay and bisexual women in, in mainstream gay bars, so the those venues tended to just have a, a smaller clientele. They were less busy, um, and I guess it's one of them in that, that those places were set up specifically for women. Even though we see kind of mainstream, you know, gay bars tend to cater more towards men. Lots of women have gay male friends, and they want to go to spaces together. And it was almost kind of like, you know, gay men have loads of places to go to. Don't go and encroach on this space that's been set up for women. Um, but it also then means that some women won't go to those spaces because they want to go to the venue with their male friends. And I think that's why you see, uh, you know, in in places uh, around the country, when you begin to look at, I guess, kind of uh, race and ethnicity in, in gay places, you tend to not have a specific venue that is set up to cater to, for example, black queer people. What you do see is special event nights held in a mainstream place. And some of that will be around, you know, how viable is that as a business model to maintain um, just in terms of profit. But those, you know, event nights are, are really important. You know, it's why we see, you know, the foundation of UK Black Pride because mainstream gay places are predominantly white. Um, There is no kind of sensitivity around anyone else's needs apart from predominantly white gay men. Um, And so that's why you see the foundation of UK Black Pride. You see the foundation of these event nights. Um, But just in terms of, you know, profit, business, keeping something going, mainstream seems to be... (laughs) the way to go but that does come at the expense of you know some of that kind of protest history. it comes at the expense of inclusion of everyone yeah I guess it comes down to that that kind of line of is any space better than no space even if that space is not perfect is it better than having no space at all
0: the commercial imperative to make enough of a profit in order to maintain a space in an increasingly popular part of the city, introduces unwelcome pressures which threaten queer spaces. As well as opening up to mainstream audiences, these venues can be forced to exclude through socio economic means, for example, by charging too much for people to be there. There are also simultaneously venues that are constantly under threat of the very gentrification they may have inadvertently caused with landlords identifying rent gaps and perhaps encouraging regeneration or even demolition. As Go puts it in their 2018 article, gay urban enclaves are threatened by their own success as historical icons of the movement have become subsumed by urban development. And yet despite this, violence and homelessness continue and socio-economic disparities are reinforced within LGBTQ communities, particularly among women, people of colour, the young and the old, and gender non-conforming people. And what it highlights is that overlapping identities and systems of oppression exacerbate the marginalisation of this community, creating unjust geographies that intertwine race, class, gender and sexuality. As David Harvey has put it when discussing the right to the city, the question of what kind of city we want cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be, what kinds of social relations we seek, what relations to nature we cherish, what style of daily life we desire, what kind of technologies we deem appropriate and what aesthetic values we hold. In other words, the right to the city is about residues reclaiming or claiming for the first time their rights to a collective urban life, to an urban society that they're actively making yet being disenfranchised from. The right to the city implies nothing less than a revolutionary conception of citizenship. And yet what the literature around queer urban spaces raises is the question of whose rights and to what city. The demand of a right to the city comes from those who are in want of it, directly oppressed, those for whom even their most immediate needs are not being fulfilled. And this means we can have a convergence of groups, coalitions, alliances, movements and assemblies around a common set of objectives. It's a combination of the deprived and the discontent which will lead to the push for a right to the city. But we should also ask ask what right we're asking for. For example, is it for marginalised groups to ask for clean air, better housing, sanitation, mobility, education, health or participation? But to secure them for all means that no one may have the right to deny them to anybody. And then we might ask, what city is it that we're trying to claim a right to? It's not a right to the existing city that is being demanded, but a right to a future city, one which has justice, equity, democracy, beauty, accessibility, community, public space, environmental quality and support to fully develop potential recognition of differences at its heart. Thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll see you next time on City Community Culture.